This episode is dedicated to Martin Carney, Eden Maria, and Reese for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. If you can spare a few dollars a month, consider supporting us on Patreon. Not only do you get access to bonus content, but you'll also be supporting this entire project. If everyone who follows us were to support us with even $1 a month, this project could actually sustain my living and make this the only thing I do. Many leftist passion projects like this one have disappeared because the creators eventually had to make a financial decision whether to continue or not. The pandemic has only accelerated this timetable. I'm not just talking about myself or Southpaw. There are plenty of others who could use your support. There's actually enough of us to all support one another. We just never thought about it. Sometimes, we just need a reminder. I also recognize many of you are also in difficult financial situations. And Paul and I appreciate you following us and telling your friends about us. If that's the only aid you can give, that's more than enough. Find links to our Patreon and our store at southpawpod.com. This is Sam. This is Zari. And this is part two and the final part of my conversation with anarchist scholar Zoe Baker. This is a question that comes up a lot, and you've already touched upon some of this, but is Marxism compatible with anarchism? Yes and no at the same time. Um, So anarchism is mainly distinguished from other kinds of socialism by the strategy it advocates. And historically, most Marxists within Marxist parties advocated engaging in parliamentary politics and seizing the existing state in order to transform it into a worker state or a democratic republic. Uh, They use various terms. And that is incompatible with anarchism. Uh, Anarchists rejected parliamentary politics, and they rejected seizing the existing state, even if it was being seized, in order to transform it into a different kind of institution. They thought that you should build the institutions of the future society outside and against the state rather than trying to change the state into into something else. It is the case that there are some Marxists who are called council communists, such as Anton Panico, who do advocate very similar things to anarchists, but in different language. Um, There are some disagreements. So the council communists tend to be more in favor of centralization as opposed to federalism. Um, But they do both advocate a system of workers' councils, self-managing production. There's just, I think, some disagreements about how to achieve coordination between those different workers' councils over a large area. Um, Outside of strategy, a person could advocate anarchist uh, ways of changing the world whilst believing in Marxist social theory. And this is something that actually happened historically. So... Rudolf Rocker in his uh, autobiography, and he was heavily involved in the Yiddish uh, anarchist movement, 
in London, even though he himself wasn't a Jew. Uh, but he learned, he taught himself Yiddish and edited and wrote for uh, one of their main newspapers. Um, he writes that there are there were several anarchists in the movement who were ex-Marxists who had been social democrats, but they then embraced anarchist ideas, but they were still adhered to historical materialism. And Rocco would have arguments with them about historical materialism uh, with anarchists who believed in it. Um, it's similarly the case that. Um, Bakunin was very heavily influenced by Marx's economics. Uh, he began translating Capital Volume 1 into uh, Russian, but didn't finish it because he wasn't very good at like finishing projects. He would kind of start loads, but then never get around to like finishing them. So lots of his texts are like kind of rough drafts that he, he never finalized. Um, and, and he refers to himself like as a materialist and says that the um, materialists are right and the idealists are wrong. Um, and there's a lot of his writing where you can clearly see that he like has um, studied Marx's economics and that's like informed his, his worldview. Similarly, the Italian anarchist Carlo Caffero read Capital Volume 1 whilst in prison and then writes a introduction, a summary of the book, which Marx reads and actually likes. And Marx tended to really dislike the summaries of Capital Volume 1 that were written by other people and like distributed within the socialist movement. He thought they were generally very inaccurate. But he liked the one written by uh, Faro. Um, moving much further on, uh, within the New Left, there's in France uh, a bunch of different people who call themselves libertarian communists and are in favor of combining the best of anarchism and Marxism. So they, they kind of were re-looking at the de historic debates that occurred between the social movements and essentially thinking like, why don't we try and combine these things rather than endlessly fighting between them? Um, and this includes a, a guy called Daniel Gurin. Um, and I would also view myself as part of that tradition. Like I, I, I'm massively influenced by both Marxism and anarchism. In a sense, I am both a Marxist and an anarchist. Although I would say that in terms of strategy, I very much like am an anarchist. But most anarchists wouldn't think of themselves as Marxist. And the reason why is that even if they really like Capital Volume 1, they really like Marx's social theory or are influenced by uh, later Marxists like critical theory, um, they don't want to name themselves after one person. They think that's incompatible with anarchist ideas because you're putting this person on a pedestal. Um, and of course, Marx, you know, didn't call himself a Marxist because it's kind of weird to like, you know, it's like if I called myself a Zoeist. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like, it's very like egocentric. And if anyone did that, you'd think they were like, you know, something's not okay with them. Um, so, you know, Marx didn't call himself the Marxist. Lenin didn't call himself Leninist. These are terms coined by people who read them and liked them um, and wanted to create a political tradition based on that. Anarchists generally name themselves after strategies or uh, the vision of the future society they have. So they'll call themselves anarchist communists or anarchist collectivists. They'll call themselves insurrectionist anarchists or anti-organizationalist anarchists or syndicalist anarchists, um, but they won't call themselves um, 
Bakuninists or Malatesterists or Kropotkinists. Um, and within the first international anarchists were actually called Bakuninists by their political opponents. Uh, and anarchists would call people who liked Marx, Marxists. And what happened is the people that the anarchists called Marxists end up going, yeah, we are Marxists. Well, the anarchists who were called Bakuninists go, no, we're not Bakuninists, <laughs> uh, we're anarchists. Um, so they, they both use terms of abuse at each other that they end up adopting as their, as their names. And, and that kind of, I think is one of the main reasons why, why a lot of anarchists just would never call themselves Marxists because they might really like Marx, but they don't want to name themselves after a person. And I kind of get that. And for me, it's more just like, a, you know, it's, it's kind of this term exists and people knows what it means. If I if I say I'm a Marxist, people know that it means that I like Marx and agree with him on lots of things. It doesn't necessarily mean that I think he's like the best socialist who ever lived and we should agree with everything he said. And I will, when arguing with people, just quote Marx at them rather than actually like explain what I think. Uh, as if Marx said something makes something true. Like, you know, that, that doesn't automatically follow from calling yourself a Marxist. And so I kind of I understand why many anarchists don't, but I I don't kind of see the problem myself because I know what I mean. It's a linguistic shorthand. It's so much quicker to say that than to go into this long explanation, right? Yeah, and for a variety of historical reasons, that just happens to be the term that stuck. Um, there's an alternative history why anarchists were never called anarchists, and they were called uh, revolutionary socialists or autonomists, which is some of the terms they actually use. Likewise, there could be an alternative history where Marxists never called themselves Marxists or still having the same uh, worldview based on reading Marx and Engels. Yeah. So I kind of tend not to put too much emphasis on the words that happen to end up being uh, adopted. I feel like a lot of these political figures and theorists, because they were at the emergence of it and creating a lot of these philosophies, right? They couldn't read themselves. So they read other philosophies, and I think socialists who also have some training in reading other types of philosophies can kind of like you step back and think of it from an objective standpoint of, I understand these terms just either shorthand or have come to mean things, so I'm going to use it in that way so we could understand one another. Whereas people who only read things within left theory or left philosophy might not be able to zoom out and have that kind of uh, outsider's viewpoint. There's that proverb by Zen poet Masuo Basho, do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise, seek what they sought. So in this instance, do not just read the wise, read what the wise read. I say that a lot to a lot of socialists. Don't just read them, read what they also read. And I would also say and read the people they disagreed with. <laughs> like uh, if you're an anarchist and you just read Bakunin or Kropotkin, you could get certain views about what Marxism is or what Marx thinks, which aren't actually true. And it's, I, I think it's even more the case if you're a Marxist and just read what Marx or Lenin have to say about anarchism, because to be frank, Lenin and Stalin and other Marxists have absolutely no understanding of anarchism. And basically every sentence they wrote on it is entirely false. Uh, Marx had more of an understanding, but still really misrepresents what uh, Bakunin and others thought. And it's also the case that I think Bakunin misrepresents Marx. And so I think, you know, read the, read both sides and work out what you think. And you don't have to 
side with a um, with a person just because they're on your team. Um, you can evaluate it and go, I'm going to disagree with what this dead person said, having read other people and realized that they misrepresented them. And if you look at online debates, you know, people misrepresent each other all the time on Twitter. Well, the same was also the true uh, in like 19th century socialist newspapers. People have been misrepresenting each other in polemical arguments for a very long time. Uh, and that's why, you know, don't just read what the person you're reading read, which I definitely agree with. Um, also read all the different positions um, and figure out what you think. And you can combine elements of different people, even if those people disagreed with each other. Yeah, stress test each other. Because I'm sure uh, the anti-capitalists of the time had to read a lot of things about capitalism to critique it in the first place. Yeah, like uh, they, they read uh, mainstream economics or political economy, as it was called at the time. Um, or they read you know, non-socialist historians in order to better understand the history of state or capitalism to critique it. Yeah, I think there's this fear of doing that, which is, to your point, then it doesn't stress test your ideas or you're critiquing them out of ignorance. And then your critique doesn't even go that deep. You have to really know it to critique it. And I would say you can learn a lot from someone you disagree with. And someone who's wrong about some things can be right about other things. So I can read a historian who's done a lot of really good archival research and get a lot of insights, insights from their work, even though they're a liberal. Although when reading their work, I should keep in mind their political worldview and how it's going to influence how they write and what they include and what they don't include and how they interpret sources. But I can still nonetheless get a lot from reading uh, a liberal historian uh, or from reading you know, another kind of socialist write about something. You should keep in mind where people are coming from. But I think it's really important to not just read people within your own uh, ideology because that then results in like orthodoxies and what I call left-wing conservatism, where people just kind of repeat things because a dead person said it rather than actually working out what's true and what the empirical evidence supports. I confuse a lot of people online because I've been doing martial arts my whole life and I'm always criticizing martial arts. So they assume you're criticizing it all the time, so you must know nothing about it. And I'm like, in fact, I know way more about it than you do. And that's why I am criticizing it because I know it so well. But I do find that most people aren't like that. They don't like to criticize what they know. They like to criticize what they don't know, which I think leads to a lot of other problematic things of criticizing the unknown, attacking the other, things like that. I, I agree. Um, I think that is a problem. It's, it's good to critique people within your own kind of way of thinking about the world. Something else that you mentioned materialist and idealist how would you explain that there's several different senses here so in a metaphysics so in metaphysics which is philosophy about fundamental questions like what is existence uh, what is time those would be metaphysical questions or in metaphysics materialism is the view that matter is the fundamental building block of reality while idealism is the view that ideas are the fundamental building block of uh, reality. And within history, there are people who are metaphysical materialists. So they think matter is the fundamental building block of reality. They think that the driving force of history are ideas. Um, 
And in response to that, there are materialists who uh, argue that ideas aren't the fundamental driving force of history, and that instead it's the manner in which uh, human beings act in the world and the kinds of social structures they create and the kind of crucially economies they create, how they uh, get food, how they reproduce themselves. And anarchists and Marxists were both materialists in the metaphysical sense. They think matter is the fundamental building block of reality and in the historical sense, but they thought the driving force of history was how human beings uh, actually act in the world and the social structures they create and how those social structures uh, underpin the kind of ideas that they end up uh, developing. I think for listeners then, how to frame this or think about this in our overall conversation is how even these types of anarchist or Marxist theories, these political theories, are building off of like bigger, older philosophical questions about being and what drives history and what drives progress. They're building off of those older metaphysical ideas. Yes, they're, they're building off of previous ideas, such as those that were developed during the Enlightenment, whilst also uh, articulating their own new ones um, and new approaches to thinking about society and the history of societies. So I think that's a connection people sometimes forget is when they're talking about like uh, eating the rich or uh, getting rid of overlords. All of this sprang from, why am I here? What is the nature of being? Are my ideas, am I matter? These more like universal questions that we've had for much longer. Well, I think for certain thinkers, those were the things that they've begun with, right? So like both Marx and Bakunin uh, read a lot of philosophy growing up as people from a very privileged background. And before they were communists or collectivists in the case of Bakunin, um, they were very much into Hegel and reading Hegel and arguing with people about Hegel. And they spent a huge amount of their youth doing this um, and thought it was really important to be right about Hegel and correctly like interpret Hegel. Um, and that then massively informed their later political commitment. But for a worker who decides to join the First International and then reads a pamphlet, I don't think the thing that's primarily driving them is, is kind of like metaphysical questions. I think it's that they they're suffering and they want to not suffer and they want to change society. But what's interesting is that when they join the social movements, those social movements have literature which they publish, which thinks it's really important to talk about these really deep philosophical questions. And so when you get a situation where, say, different anarchist newspapers, which are run by workers who are doing everything in their spare time or working a full-time job, are arguing with each other about free will versus determinism, as like an important thing to talk about in an anarchist newspaper. Um, and so they, even if people escape, often join social movements for really concrete problems, through participating in them, they would often acquire a deeper interest in philosophy and a lot of anarchist workers thought it was really important for them to uh, read and study science and philosophy to gain a, a much more educated worldview, and that that was important for them being able to change society and be good anarchists. Now, tell us about the means and ends anarchist theory of unity. So anarchists um, subscribe to a theory called the unity of means and ends. And what this was based on is that they thought that 
when human beings engage in actions, they simultaneously change society and so, uh, social relations and themselves. So, for example, workers go on strike. And in going on strike, they not only uh, change social structures, so they're earning more, they've created a new social structure, which is a trade union. Their boss is now afraid of them and wants to try and fire them for having been in a union. They've also changed themselves. So they've acquired new capacities, like they know how to organize a union. They know how to take minutes at the union's meeting. Um, they know how to engage in various kinds of direct action to win demands. And they've acquired new uh, motivations. So they now want to stand up to their boss. They want to say now, end capitalism, which they didn't before. They participated in the struggle. Um, and they've acquired new ideas. So to say, through being in this struggle, uh, they have changed how they think about trade unions. And where, say, before they thought they were bad, they now think they're really good. And anarchists applied this way of thinking about how social change occurs, such that if it's the case that when you engage in actions, you simultaneously change society and yourself, it follows that if you want to arrive at a particular goal, you have to engage in means that will actually transform people in social relations such that you actually achieve that goal. Therefore, there has to be a unity between the means you use to achieve an end goal and the ends that you have in question. And what means you use will therefore be determined by the ends you have. So if you want to create a really authoritarian society, like say you want to create a fascist society, well, there are loads of means that are available to you as someone who wants to create a fascist society that won't be available to someone who wants to create a free society. Because if someone who wants to create a free society engages in the same kinds of activities as what the fascist does, they won't end up creating a free society even if they genuinely want to. They end up creating an authoritarian one because through engaging in those actions, they're going to produce authoritarian social relations and they're going to transform themselves such that they themselves become an authoritarian, even though they started out wanting to achieve a free society, but their choice of means put them on a path that culminated in a fundamentally different end. Therefore, anarchists spent a huge amount of time trying to work out, given our end of collectivism, communism, what are the means that will be the actual pathway to that goal that will develop people into the kinds of individuals who can create a communist society? So they want, during the struggle against capitalism, the state, people to develop into the kinds of agents that can reproduce a collectivist or communist society. So they want people to learn how to act for themselves, how to not defer to authority figures, how to um, make decisions in a non-hierarchical way, uh, how to, especially uh, for um, an anarchist feminists who wrote, how to not oppress women, um, how to um, not reproduce other structures of oppression um, within our daily lives. And given that, you've got to engage in means that actually develop people to acquire those capacities, motivations, and, and ideas. Um, so, for example, part of why anarchists advocated the kinds of decision-making structures I was talking about before was because they thought that, well, if a communist society is one in which people make decisions within general assemblies, and if we're going to reach a communist society, we need to learn how to do that. And not just us, but the majority of workers in society. 
Otherwise, they won't actually be able to create a communist society. So therefore, the social movements aiming for a communist society should make decisions through federations of general assemblies. And in so doing, they not only make decisions as a social movement, but they also literally develop into the people who could create a communist society. And that won't happen if they're making decisions in a fundamentally different way. Um, and so that, that's the idea. So then this is the problem with state socialism. Yes. Uh, so anarchists argued that if you try to achieve socialism or communism through seizing state power, they thought that was a choice of means that would not be the pathway to a communist society. So they didn't, they didn't expect to be able to create a full communist society overnight. They thought it would take a long period of time. Kropotkin uh, thought a revolution would take at least five years, probably more. Um, and so they thought it was like a really complex, long process, but they thought seizing state power uh, will not move people in the direction of communism. Instead, what will happen is that due to how the state is structured, which is it's a top-down, hierarchical, centralized organization in which a minority of people uh, make decisions and impose those decisions on others through institutionalized violence. That's what a state is according to anarchists. Um, what will happen is that even if those people are elected um, democratically, they will develop distinct interests as people who actually exercise state power. And since the state is centralized, it's not possible for literally all workers to exercise state power. So it has to be a minority who actually do the day-to-day -day exercise uh, of, of state power. And through doing that, that activity will transform them into people who, even though they began out as sincere revolutionaries who wanted to achieve communism, they'll end up uh, being primarily concerned with expanding their power, with reproducing it, and not giving it up. And so anarchists didn't think the state would wither away. They thought it would become self-reproducing as the group of people in charge of it uh, become a new distinct political ruling class with interests that are separate from the workers who elected them and who they claim to represent. And this is if the state is like a functioning representative democracy. Um, anarchists thought something much worse could happen, which is that a dictator would seize the state that the socialist revolution had created. And then you wouldn't even have democratically elected rulers. You would have a, um, undemocratic, uh, dictator. And then this is, you know, what happened in, in the USSR where you have, um, kind of fake, uh, elections that aren't actually democratic. Um, and for a significant period of time, you don't even have that, uh, which ensures that Stalin and people within his inner circle, provided he doesn't later decide to shoot them. Um, are uh, in power, and they are the ones who monopolize decision making. And anarchists, this kind of shows that their critique was right, that the means of, of using state power would transform committed socialists, which Stalin was um, prior to um, becoming a dictator. And they thought, and the reason why they thought this would happen is because they studied the French Revolution which for them was the nearest revolution that occurred. And they saw what happened where you have uh, the terror, you have the state being used to crush other revolutionaries, 
Um, and then you have um, Bonaparte seizing that state and setting himself up as a dictator. And they thought, well, that's just going to repeat um, if socialists try to do it. And I would argue that they were correct in that prediction. And anarchists didn't just apply this theory like to state socialism, they also applied it to themselves. So they thought, you know, even if an anarchist decides to create something like a state or join the state, the exact same thing will happen. So it's not, it's not that they're not thinking like, if we just have people with the right ideas and power, things will work out. They think that the very process of exercising power will, is a choice of means that will transform people irrespective of their intentions, their worldview, uh, what books they've read into someone who is concerned with reproducing and expanding their power rather than creating a situation where that power is no longer the case and you're moving towards a communist society. Something that is not covered much is anarchist anti-imperialism. As a Korean person who was anti-imperialist before I was anything else, this is a topic of great interest for me. Can you give us the history of anarchist anti-imperialism and how anarchists approach anti-imperialism? So this is a very big topic. Uh, you could not only write one book on this, you could write you know, a huge number of books on it. Um, so I'm going to just try to cover lots of ground quickly, giving a few illustrative examples that are in no way exhaustive. So anarchists were committed to internationalism in the sense that they advocated universal human emancipation, irrespective of what nationality or color a person was, and thought that the power of capitalism in the state could only be overcome through the combined effort of the international working class acting in support of one another. Uh, so Malatesta writes that anarchists view the whole world as our homeland, all humanity as our brothers and sisters. And under capitalism, this internationalism had to be grounded of an, un an understanding of the shared class interests of the working class. Uh, so Malatesta writes that any worker, the oppressed, Chinese or Russian, or from any other country, is our brother, just as the property owner, the oppressor, is our enemy, even if he is born in our hometown. Now, this commitment to universal human emancipation and working class internationalism led anarchists to impose imperialism and colonialism. So in the United States, Italian anarchists opposed Columbus Day in the 1890s, and they would write articles in which they critique Columbus as an enslaver who massacred people and set the stage for future racial oppression in the United States. So what some people might assume is a kind of more recent thing for people to talk about was being talked about not only obviously by indigenous people, but also by Italian anarchists in the 19th century. The French anarchist Jean Grave uh, similarly rejected the narrative that the French were bringing civilization to Africa. And he praised the Haitian Revolution, which was a revolution launched by slaves in Haiti in which they rose up and emancipated themselves from French colonial rule. And Jean Grave argued that the Haitians were in fact superior to the French because they had fought for their independence. Um, anarchists generally argued that imperialism and colonialism were caused by both capitalism and the state, such that it was a, there's a combination of economic and political causes 
and different authors would emphasize uh, different elements within their writings. Um, so these are things like needing to establish new markets, uh, steal resources, take out economic rivals, establish monopolies, but also patriotism and militarism and the distinct interests of the military within the state. And one of the main anarchists who theorized this is a Japanese anarchist called Kotoku Shusui, and I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name. Um, he wrote a book called Imperialism, Monster of the 20th Century in 1901. And this is before Lenin's 1916 Imperialism, the Highest Phase of Capitalism. At the time of writing, uh, Kotoku was a state socialist. He advocated parliamentary strategies. But by 1905, he's adopted anarchism and embraced direct action uh, tactics because he realized they were much more effective, uh, effective than we'd previously been doing. Now, in Kotaku's book, he develops a model for thinking about both European and Japanese imperialism. And this is really important because Lenin's later theory of imperialism can't actually be used to explain Japanese imperialism in the early 20th century because Lenin argues that imperialism develops out of monopoly capitalism and in particular finance capital. Uh, but this hasn't properly emerged in Japan uh, when Kotoku uh, was writing at the dawn of the 20th century. Um, Kotoku defines imperialism in terms of territorial expansion, where a state creates an empire through uh, using military force or diplomacy backed by military force to expand their territory and, and get a, a new piece of land. Um, and he, he talks about lots of different causes of it. Uh, and the one I will briefly talk about is patriotism, which I think is still very relevant today. So he argues that because of patriotism, people come to identify with their local nation state, and it becomes a core part of their identity, that they're a member of that nation state. And they come to identify with the ruling class who controls that state such that they should serve that uh, ruling class and in so doing in some way expanding their own interests. Um, so, for example, a Japanese person will be socialized to be loyal to the emperor of Japan or British person to Queen Victoria. And they will come to view people who belong to different countries as enemies who they must fear and hate. And they must be um, make sacrifices for the uh, ruling class in order to advance the interests of the nation. And this then results in Japanese soldiers who will fight to conquer land and resources for Japan as a nation, even though the people who are actually benefiting from this territorial expansion aren't the majority of Japanese people who are being exploited by the ruling class, but the ruling minority at the top of the state and um, capitalists are the ones who are actually benefiting from this imperialism. Uh, but due to patriotism, uh, workers learn, uh, they misidentify their interests and that they identify so strongly with the nation state, uh, and the ruling class that controls it, that they think that in conquering this land, they're advancing their own interests because of the nation state they belong to, and actually they're not. And Kotoku thinks that in the absence of this patriotism, among other factors, nation states wouldn't be able to successfully pursue imperialist projects because to do that, they need they need the support of the population who won't, say, rise up uh, in insurrection when they try to invade another country. 
And what patriotism ensures is that there are lots of people who are willing to fight and die for the nation state, or if they're conscripted, they won't um, refuse to follow orders. They will you know, sacrifice themselves for, for, the, for the nation. And that those who disagree and oppose the war will be attacked by other people as traitors who don't love their country. And this is obviously still a huge problem today, right? Where people, if you try to say, critique uh, the British Empire historically or uh, the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, and of course the long and complex history of American imperialism, people will say, oh, you know, you just hate England or you just hate uh, the United States um, because they're unable to distinguish between the people who live in a particular country and the state that rules them. And they've learned to identify with the state who rules them to such an extent that any attack on the violence of that state is taken to be an attack on this abstract entity called the nation. Um, and I think that's a kind of really interesting insight from Kotoku. Um, moving on to national liberation movement. So anarchists uh, generally supported national liberation movements which sought to achieve independence from imperial or uh, colonial rule. And they did so while arguing that, given their critique of state socialism, given the unity of means and ends, it follows that these national liberation movements can only actually achieve liberation from both external and internal oppressors through an anarchist social revolution. So it's kind of like, yes, we support you rising up against this terrible emperor, uh, or sorry, empire, but if you want to genuinely achieve this emancipation, which is why you've risen up, and that's really amazing, you should uh, not see state power. You should not uh, establish a new ruling class that will develop new interests and then come to oppress you in a similar way to how you were previously oppressed um, by a foreign uh, imperial power. So to give a few examples of anarchist support for national liberation movement, um, Malatesta traveled to Egypt in 1882 in order to fight against the British Empire, which had recently invaded uh, the country. Uh, he was unfortunately captured by the British before he could participate in any combat, but it still highlights his level of dedication to anti-imperialism, that he heard about this happening and immediately went, I have to go fight the British Empire, even though it's just me and a few anarchist friends, like we, you know, we are willing to lay down our lives the cause of uh, universal human emancipation, even though you know we're from Italy, we're not from Egypt, because they were internationalists. In 1895, Italy invaded Eritrea and Ethiopia, which at the time was called Abyssinia, and Cuba rose up in order to gain independence from the Spanish Empire. Now, in response to this, the Italian anarchist paper, uh, La Question Sociale, which Malatesta would go on to edit, but at the time didn't, uh, it means the social question. And they published an article in which they wrote the following. We know that our patria, which means like homeland or country, is not the land where we were born, but that for us it is the highest concept and no more limited than the entire universe. We know that we ourselves give absolute solidarity to the oppressed of Italy, to those of Abyssinia, of Armenia, as with the glorious insurgents of Cuba and the strong and courageous exiles of faraway Siberia, that finally we, without distinction of color, race, language, or custom, 
share affection and adoration for all the oppressed of humanity. Um, and they not only wrote about it, but several Italian anarchists actually took up arms, they travelled to Cuba, and they fought against the Spanish Empire. Although it should be noted that some Cuban anarchists um, kind of rejected this and didn't think um, anarchists should participate in it because it was kind of a bourgeois, like capitalist thing and wasn't a genuinely uh, working class like insurrection towards communism. Uh, but other Cuban anarchists disagreed with them. Um, the Italian anarchist Antonio Canovas del, del Castillo, um, he actually went and assassinated the Spanish prime minister in 1897. Not only because he brutally tortured Spanish anarchists, uh, but also because of the violent repression of the independence movements in Cuba and the Philippines, which I think again shows like dedicated support of um, national liberation struggle, even if uh, some people might not think it was tactically advisable to assassinate the uh, Spanish prime minister because of how it uh, doesn't achieve long-term social change, but does lead to a huge amount of state repression towards uh, the anarchist movement. Uh, Malatesta actually travels to Cuba uh, while the war for independence is going on, uh, and he and America's um, becoming involved. And he gives a series of talks on anarchism, and there's some I think very illustrative uh, points he makes about how anarchists think about this. So he says that anarchists, being the enemies of all governments and claiming the right to live and grow in total freedom for all ethnic and social groups as well as for every individual, must necessarily oppose any actual government and side with any people that fights for their freedom. Um, he then goes on to say that it would be very sad if so much heroism and sacrifice only resulted in a change of masters, as has happened in other countries, including Italy, where the people, having shed its blood for national independence and momentarily enjoyed the thrill of victory, soon realised that domestic tyrants were as wicked as foreign ones. Um, so the basic anarchist point is support for national liberation movements, but it's, to use the phrase, critical support, uh, and they think that these social movements should aim not to replace one set of masters with a new set of masters, uh, an external oppressor in favour of a new internal oppressor, but should instead abolish the system of masters itself uh, and um, work towards achieving a, a working class socialist uh, revolution. Uh, and one last very quick example, because uh, I've been talking a lot about Italian men, um, is the Indian anarchist MPT Acharya. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, he was originally a member of various Indian nationalist and anti-colonial movements, and he was a co-founder of the Communist Party of India in 1920, but he, he ends up being expelled and adopting anarchism. And he becomes a prolific writer within the international anarchist press. After becoming an anarchist, Acharya continued to advocate for Indian independence from the British Empire, but did so from an anarchist perspective, where he argued that it could only be achieved through an anarchist social revolution, because just like other anarchists had argued, uh, seizing state power would, re would result in a new minority ruling class rather than the self-determination of Indian people as a whole, which is what the independence movement on paper uh, wanted to achieve. Um, after India won independence, Acharya wrote an article in which he said that nothing has changed under the republic except the skin and dress. 
So the previous point where they've removed an external oppressor, the British Empire, but now they have a new internal oppressor, the Indian state itself. I think that I think covers anarchist anti-imperialism. I could say a lot more, but I think that's kind of that covers enough. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Something I think many of us are thinking about is the climate crisis. It's a looming threat where time is running out. So let's say we have five days or else the world burns up. That's a situation where very few options remain. How flexible is anarchist theory in this regard? So let's assume we can't overthrow capitalism in the state and create an ecologically sustainable uh, socialist economy. In those circumstances, um, which say could be the next 10 years uh, uh, at the moment, well, then the anarchist position is that workers should engage in direct action to force capitalists and the state, especially politicians, to do environmentally positive things. Um, so, you know, workers in the fossil fuel industry should go on strike in order to force those industries to get them new jobs working with green technology rather than fossil fuel. Um, social movements should force politicians to pass, you know, something like a Green New Deal um, and massively restructure the economy to make it less environmentally destructive or people with pipelines are being built just like has you know, recently happened, should engage in direct action to try and prevent this from occurring and support indigenous people in their struggles uh, uh, against uh, these massive corporations and governments. And so just because you can't abolish the state doesn't mean you can't influence it. And anarchists are in favor of trying to influence the state because it exists and has a lot of power. They just think that should be done through direct action and imposing uh, pressure on the state externally, rather than trying to enter the state and change it from within. They don't think that's a good idea because you won't change the state. It will change you. Instead, social movements should be outside and against the state. And, um, and this way, the struggle for ecological change can also be effective because I think direct action is more effective at achieving rapid social change than elections, which don't happen very often and don't change much when they do. Um, but also because it means that it can be a choice of means which puts us on the path towards a f- fundamentally free society without capitalism in the state. And we can't just think short term, we also have to think um, long term, even when we're dealing with you know, short term catastrophes like climate change, um, because we don't want to say what's happened with a lot of green social movements, which is that they start off as direct action movements, say in Germany, they then found the Green, green Party and then they become just another party within the state that reproduces the same old uh, problems, including ecological ones. 
Um, and I think there's a lesson there. So I gave the time frame of five years. In the US, presidential elections happen every four years. So waiting for that to be the change maker is already too late. So then to your point, if there's a time crunch, you have to do direct action now. And there might not even be enough time to overthrow the state and start all over. You just got to make demands right now. Yeah, if it's not possible to overthrow the state and capitalism, which I don't think it is right now, like social movements aren't big and strong enough, well, we can build social movements which are capable of doing that through struggling for immediate improvement. In our current context, one of the main improvements we should be struggling for is preventing you know, mass extinction of the human species through climate uh, apocalypse. Um, uh, because, you know, if, if the climate goes extremely bad, it, it it's also means that it's going to be much harder to achieve uh, communism on top of all the other horrific things it will uh, result in. Yeah, it'd be hard to achieve communism if we're all dead, I'm pretty sure. Exactly. <laughs> I really enjoy listening to or reading left theory from the perspective of people of color, women, trans and queer and disabled. But when we think of theory, this is not what we think of. Why do you think that is? So I think this, of course, depends on the person, right? So like when I think of theory, I think of all kinds of different people. But I do agree that there's a tendency that people will say often just think of like white male dead guys. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a variety of reasons for this. Um, so first of all, there's an issue to do with what's been translated. So the USSR funded the publication of and translation of the complete works of Marx and Engels. Uh, and that's then meant that it's a lot easier to gain access to their writings than, for example, say, He and Zen, who's a Chinese anarchist uh, that I really like, but she wasn't translated into English until 2013. And we don't even have everything she wrote translated. We only have a selection. Um, and this is true for loads of other thinkers who are women and who are people of color uh, around the world. They're writing in languages that aren't English, so English people aren't aware of them, and they're not translated. And even when they are translated, you know, lots of people aren't aware of Hien Zen, even though she's been available in English since 2013 and is one of the best historic anarchist theorists uh, I've ever read. Um, and I think there's this kind of canonization that occurs where social movements have been socialized in our society in which we're taught great men theories of history. And they then do the same, but for the social movement. So you have great man theory of history, but it's about socialism or communism. And this means that a lot of women or people of color's contributions to theory just aren't remembered. So every leftist will have heard of Karl Marx, but they won't have, won't have heard of Flora Tristan, who is a French socialist, that Marx actually read when he was becoming a communist and was an important influence on his uh, ideas. Um, and I only know of Flora Tristan because I've, you know, spent years reading about the history of socialism. And there was a whole period where I didn't even know she existed, even though I'd spent ages reading about the subject. And I think that people will often be aware of like a small selection. So like people will know Franz Fanon or they will know of Emma Goldman. But there's so many other people like Ian Zen or, um, Kotoko Shusui, who I mentioned previously. Uh, or MPT Acharya that they just um, won't be aware of. And I think it's important that we kind of change that and change how we think about and construct the history of our social movements and try to not, we, there's, there are two extremes, right? Like we, we don't want to 
ignore what all the dead white guys with beards have to say. They have a lot of really interesting worthwhile things to say. I think it's really important to read Marx and Bakunin and, and Malatesta. But it's also the case that we should read all these other both alive and dead people who aren't men and who uh, aren't white. And that that should uh, be as much a part of our lecturing education as reading um, the kind of classic uh, text. Um, although it should be pointed out that Marx was Jewish, so in certain respects, he wasn't strictly speaking white, but yeah. Along with that idea of reading other types of theorists, I've seen that concept shut down for the sake of building mass solidarity. Don't overcomplicate it with all these other ideas, or maybe just just like class reductionism. It's just about working class. We don't need to input all those other concepts. But do you think this is counterproductive? Um, yes, right? So like, if you think about things internationally, uh, half of the people in the world, say generally speaking, are women, and there's obviously even loads of like non-binary people uh, as well. Um, and so there's a huge audience that you need to speak to, you have issues you need to speak to, um, and you won't do that if you don't talk about their oppression. Uh, likewise, there are obviously a huge number of different um, groups of people of color around the world, which again have distinct experiences of oppression that we need to speak to. So even from a kind of purely like, we need to build a mass movement perspective, ignoring all other concerns, I still don't think it makes sense because you know, if your movement doesn't talk about women's oppression, well, lots of women won't join, or if they do join, they'll leave. Likewise with racism. Um, and ignoring that, you know, we're meant to be about emancipation. The reason why we're socialist is because we want a free society in which everyone can develop themselves. Well, if you want a free society in which everyone can develop themselves, then you have to not only oppose class oppression, but also sexism and racism and so on. And this was also, you know, even the case within the historic socialist movement. So Marx wrote uh, the preface to the program of the French Socialist Party in, I believe, 1880, uh, in which he includes within the preface an explicit opposition to women's oppression uh, and an explicit opposition to racism. And that was part of the program of this very early uh, socialist party written by Marx himself. So even if you want to kind of appeal to class politics and appeal to what the dead men with beards have to say, well, they will disagree with you that we should only focus on class. Uh, and they thought that uh, gender and, and, and uh, racist oppression were also really important, although they didn't write as much about it. You know, Marx was focused on writing about capitalism, and we have to kind of add new insights uh, to the insights he had about capitalism. And I, I think he would agree with that. So, yeah, I, I kind of really reject the... Uh, the whole idea that it's counterproductive, both on a practical ground and on the kind of theoretical one, that we should advocate universal human emancipation, just like workers in the 19th century did, like the anarchists I was talking about previously. And these were people who, you know, never went to university. They were self-taught. They taught themselves how to read while working a full-time job. And this is before the eight hour day. So, you know, they're working, say, 12 to 14 hours a day. And then in their spare time, teaching themselves how to read at an anarchist school. So they can educate themselves and emancipate themselves. And, you know, if they could do that, what's our excuse um, to, you know, read feminist theory when I was taught to read as a child and haven't had to work, uh, you know, 12 to 15 hours a day in a factory. And the same is true for a lot of other people, even if, of course, you know, that I understand they're tired from work, but 
you can still read a few articles, right? Like just as they did. Um, and we've got podcasts now, <laughs> which yeah. uh, they didn't. Uh, although they did have their own version of podcasts, you would kind of hang out and what the worker who could read, because most of them couldn't, uh, would read the paper out to everyone else, and then they would have a discussion of it. So that's they kind of they had their own version of podcasts. This oral tradition. Yes. But alienating people is not good for building mass solidarity. Agreed. So building upon this, identity politics has become a pejorative in certain parts of the left. But much like communism, do you think the history of identity politics and its intent is also misunderstood? So what a lot of people aren't aware of is that one of the earliest, if not the earliest, usages of the term identity politics is the Combahee River Collective Statement, which is written in 1977 by a group of uh, black women who were socialists, uh, most of whom are lesbians, as far as I recall. And within that statement, uh, they say that the following. Uh, they say that focusing upon our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity. So what they were saying is that, yes, we're against capitalism. Yes, we're against imperialism. But as black women or black women who are lesbians, we have distinct experiences of oppression, which interlock with other systems of oppression like uh, capitalism, and that we can develop a radical politic by contemplating on our life experiences and on our social position as a member of this identity group. And that's what identity politics originally was. Um, what happened is that over time, it ended up becoming a kind of pejorative for ignoring class politics, even though it was originally developed by black socialists who explicitly talk about why capitalism should be overthrown in the statement which uses the term identity politics. But people just aren't aware of that. And it tends to be used to critique what I call vulgar identity politics, which is essentially like if we have women in power, they will be great and they will deal with lots of social problems. And that can be critiqued and rejected without rejecting identity politics as a whole. Um, and instead, what happens is people conflate this vulgar bad identity politics, which is about, you know, tokenistic uh, changes or important reforms, but which don't get at the root of social problems, right? So like, it's a situation where, yay, we might have gender neutral bathrooms, but we're still being exploited by our boss who uses the correct pronouns. Um, and I would argue you can use a kind of identity politics that's grounded in class politics uh, to critique that vulgar identity politics while not falling into a situation where you ignore the importance on drawing on your social position as someone who experiences multiple different kinds of oppression uh, to inform how you think about social change uh, and what that social change looks like. What about feminism on the left? How has it been received over time? So what feminism means in the 19th century to a lot of leftists is the suffragettes. So a social movement that aims to achieve the vote for women. And you read, say, anarchists critique feminism, and you could get the wrong idea and think it means they're against women's emancipation. Uh, they're not. They're against trying to achieve the vote as a way to achieve social change, be it men or women trying to achieve it. But they did uh, support women's emancipation 
um, even if they didn't call it feminism. So lots of anarchist male writers have sections where they talk about women's emancipation, including domestic labor. Uh, so Kropotkin writes in The Conquest of Bread how if a, if a social revolution just abolishes capitalism in the state, but doesn't abolish um, women's oppression within the home, then there'll need to be another revolution that emancipates women, that it, that it won't be a full revolution unless that happens. Um, and there were also lots of anarchist women who wrote about women's oppression and how it should be abolished. But there was also lots of sexism within the left. And you can have a situation where male anarchists would be like, yeah, I support women's emancipation, but obviously women should, should still look after kids and do all the housework or I support women's emancipation. Um, but it's still the case that, you know, women should have a husband. They shouldn't kind of live by themselves uh, or that we should wait till after the revolution to achieve women's emancipation. And we don't have to change our behavior in the here and now. But there were also lots of women arguing against this and organizing around it and creating newspapers where they would critique sexism in the movement. Um, and there were likewise anarchist men who supported them uh, in those endeavors. So it's both very depressing in the sense there was a lot of sexism, including sexual violence within the historic socialist movement, uh, just like today. Uh, but it's also very inspiring because there's lots of people, um, men and women, who are trying to further the cause of women's emancipation and doing so, you know, in the 19th century um, in a society that was much more uh, sexist than our own. And it's no, it's hard to do it in our society, and it was, I think, much harder in theirs because of how, how much more entrenched it was because there hadn't yet been such significant changes in consciousness uh, through uh, different successive uh, feminist movements. So what framework do you use to approach feminism? So the idea of women's emancipation is a kind of long history. But the term feminism and a social movement calling itself feminist doesn't really emerge till the 19th century, although it does develop out of previous ideas within the radical enlightenment, which is the wing of the enlightenment that are like super cool and uh, <laughs> uh, so a lot of socialism develops out of. Um, and this includes people like Mary Wollstonecraft, who argues for uh, women's emancipation in the 18th century. Um, but it's very difficult to define feminism because it just includes so many different movements who will call themselves feminists, but are very different politics. So I would argue that feminism has two main components. So there's a descriptive component, a claim about how the world is, which is that women are uniquely oppressed in some sense. Um, and then there's a normative component, which is a claim about how the world should be, which is that women should be emancipated from this oppression then you get different kinds of feminism that emerge depending upon how they conceptualize the nature of women's oppression, what they think women's emancipation is, and how they think women's emancipation can or should be achieved. So there are um, feminists who mainly just focus on, on gender and patriarchy, and then there are feminists who think that women's oppression has to be understood in terms of how it relates to capitalism or how it relates to racism. And so you then get, say, Marxist feminists, you get uh, intersectional feminists, uh, you get radical feminists, and they're all feminists, but they all kind of have different models on how women's oppression should be understood. Uh, and then they also have different views on how to achieve that. Um, so a lot of liberal feminists will focus on changes to the law, 
uh, electing women into positions of power, uh, creating um, charities and NGOs to try and achieve some kind of uh, reform, um, having more women CEOs, and that'll be their focus. Or there'll be lots of socialist and anti-capitalist feminists where their focus is on organizing women within socialist movement in order to combat both their oppression as women and their oppression as workers simultaneously. Uh, and that's the kind of feminist um, I am. I think we have to have uh, working class social movements which aim to achieve the overthrow of capitalism in the state in favor of um, libertarian communism, but that those social movements should also aim to abolish all systems of oppression, and that includes therefore women's emancipation, and therefore they should also focus on um, achieving that, such as say, if a state tries to take away abortion rights, uh, or even if it doesn't even have abortion rights yet, that should be a main thing to organize direct action around. And it is interestingly the case that historically uh, anarchists in Germany in the Weimar Republic um, in the 1920s would organize around abortion. Uh, they would give talks uh, educating women about it. They would train uh, people in how to do abortions and actually do um, illegal abortions. Um, so they, you know, they didn't just try to um, campaign for a change in the law, but they also actively engaged in illegal activity to meet women's needs uh, for abortion. And several anarchists were actually imprisoned uh, for doing this because it was legal to do so. And I, I think that's kind of something that continues to like inspire me in terms of how to fight for women's emancipation, but doing so through direct action, doing so in a way where it's not about changing um, rulers. So we have women dominating us instead of men. Uh, instead, we want a situation where no one's dominating us uh, in the kind of oppressive sense. And we are instead self-determining our lives um, in, in, in every aspect of it, not just in the workplace, but also at home not just in a general assembly, but also with our uh, romantic partners or with our friends. Something I've heard you discuss in other interviews related to the means and ends theory of unity is how reactionary cultures we come from can reproduce in leftist circles, like an endless feedback loop. We've seen this with misogyny or racism or transphobia. And from my observation of American leftists, American exceptionalism shows up in U.S. leftist circles, along with a U.S. bias that rarely thinks about imperialism, let alone colonialism. So can you unpack this concept of reproduction for us? So to think about this, you have to think about what social structures are. So social structures are a metaphor uh, for thinking about human beings and how they relate to one another. So, you know, if you look out the window, you won't see a social structure, right? You'll just see people going about. And what a social structure is, is a pattern of behavior that individuals engage in, which creates something that's bigger than all their individual actions. And that bigger thing they create then in turn determines the kinds of actions they can engage in and the kinds of actions they do, in fact, engage in. Uh, so it both enables them to act in certain ways and also prevents them from acting in, in other ways. So for example, uh, we have a social structure in our society, which is marriage. And that social structure uh, both enables you to do things like you can get married, you can get a divorce, you can you know, 
plan your wedding. Um, but it also prevents you from engaging in certain kinds of other things. So, for example, uh, there are societies in which it was unacceptable to have a sexual relationship outside of marriage, and there were huge social costs uh, to doing so due to the way in which the social uh, structure um, enables people to do certain kinds of things and actively discourages or prevents them from doing other things. And this results in the social structure reproducing itself because people are um, born and they engage in certain kinds of activity and they're taught certain things and they're actively in a situation where they're, you know, taught like, you know, marriage is how you become happy. Well, you know, who doesn't want to be happy? Therefore, I need to go get married and that's how I'll achieve uh, bliss in my life. Um, and then people who reject that, who say are gay and uh, or queer in some sense and reject this dominant culture, they're massively ostracized and have huge social costs for doing so. Um, so something Malatesta says is he says, between man and his social environment, there is reciprocal action. Men make society what it is, and society makes men what they are. And the result is therefore a kind of vicious circle. To transform society, men must be changed. And to transform men, society must be changed. And I think this is the big problem that the left has, right? Like where we're trying to change society, but we're part of a society, and our society is really messed up. And that means that then our social movements are also really messed up because we've internalized all these, you know, awful ideas. But I think there is a way out of this vicious circle, uh, which is what Marx called revolutionary uh, praxis. Uh, Malatest doesn't use that term, but he advocates the exact same idea, which is that there's the coincidence of the changing of circumstances and the changing of people. So if we want to break this vicious cycle, uh, of us being socialized to reproduce social structures, which we can constitute or at the same time reproduce in a kind of never ending, uh, cycle. What we need to do is engage in actions, which transform us and the social relations such that we create new people who think about things differently and actively and new social structures, which then all become self reproducing. And rather than us having a vicious circle of us reproducing messed up stuff, we'll have, as it were, a virtuous circle. Uh, where we're reproducing good things like not being a sexist, like, you know, you're born, you're taught women are human beings, <laughs> uh, sexism is bad, <laughs> um, you know, you learn this at school, and then you, uh, you know, reproduce that as an adult, and you uh, you don't uh, treat women terribly, as opposed to our society where that doesn't happen. Um, and I think the way left-wing movements can do this, obviously, on a smaller scale, because we can't transform society overnight or once, we have to start small in our own lives, in our own movements. I think the big things to focus are on one education. So it should be, you know, as it were, mandatory in social movements. If, if, if they're teaching people, say, about dialectical materialism or, you know, read Kropotkin, it should also be read modern feminism, uh, read modern anti-racist theory, read the black radical tradition and use that education to think about how you've been socialized and try to unlearn the messed up things you've absorbed from the society through, you know, just through living in it. You know, it's like no one was born and was like, I'm going to uh, become a terrible person who oppresses other people, right? Like what happens is you're taught certain things and you internalize them without even being aware that that's what's happening. And then you just kind of go about your day doing them unaware that you're, you're doing those things. So the first step is education, right? Being able to notice when you're being sexist, being able to notice when you're being racist. And then focus on changing your own individual behavior and also the, the kind of culture, say, of the movement, like 
in meetings, who's doing the talking? And how can we try and get a situation, say, where women are talking more in meetings uh, or, or where people of color are being listened to rather than, say, someone because of how they've been socialized um, unconsciously, you know, not, not listening to their perspectives and, you know, doing all the talking. Um, and this is a really slow, difficult thing, but it can be done. And the reason why we know it can be done is because, well, compare today to 100 years ago, um, when Emma Goldman gave talks on homosexuality, she had anarchist men tell her that she shouldn't discuss perverted sex forms and it would damage the reputation of the movement. I don't think that's something that an anarchist would say to me today if I were to give talks on homosexuality, right? Instead, it might be like, are you going to talk about non-binary people in your talk? <laughs> you know, like they, they, they were of other concerns uh, than, than uh, me talking about gays. Um, and that, that is because social change has occurred, uh, which isn't to say social change has, you know, we haven't achieved everything we wanted to, but social movements have significantly changed the culture and we can continue that work and continue to fight against all systems of oppression and um, build on the, the struggles of previous people who had to um, also go up against the fact that, you know, they were also socialized to reproduce oppressive structures. And they also had to sit down and figure out how not to do that and how to unlearn it. And it's a process and we all have to do it. And this is both if you're in the oppressed group and if you're in the uh, oppressor group, you know, like women have to unlearn sexism just as much as men. You know, women can teach their um, children to be sexist just as much as a father can. Um, and so we all have things to unlearn and we all have to uh, move forward together and learn from each other and our different life experiences. I wonder if part of only wanting to read white male theorists, especially by white men, is because reading other types of theory includes internal work. If I'm reading a black Marxist or a Marxist woman, an indigenous radical, or if I'm reading the work of a trans anarchist like yourself, it's going to be informed by your life experiences and how you all think about yourselves. That adds an extra psychological component. This might mean I have to do some self-reflection and deconstruction, some unlearning to your point, which many leftist men might not want to do. So have you found you get pushback when you talk about this part of left politics? So my first point would be that me being trans does, of course, inform my work in certain respects, but I'm also wary of being reduced to being trans. So if you're a trans person, people will want you to talk about being trans when actually I know very little about the subject. Uh, I know far more about dead European men with beards and what they thought about various <laughs> things uh, than I do about being trans, even though you know, I'm not a dead European man with a beard. Um, likewise, I don't want people to uh, follow me or listen to me because I'm trans, because I'm from this oppressed group. I want them to do so because I'm producing good things. I know what I'm talking about. I make good arguments and I have good evidence to back up my claims. You know, people from oppressed groups can be just as uninformed as anyone else, even if they can be uninformed in a way which draws upon their experience of oppression. Um, and you can have people who are from an oppressed group who don't even realize they're oppressed and, or, or, or think their oppression is a good thing, like women who are against feminism and support, uh, you know, what's called the men's rights movement, but, you know, isn't about uh, men's rights about sexism um and but you know leaving that aside go back to your main question yes i have experienced 
pushback when I talk about these things. So when I first started making videos years ago talking about identity politics and its actual history and advocating feminism, I would get a lot of comments of people, you know, being like, why are you talking about this? You know, we should just be focusing on class and kind of uh, attacking me in various ways. And then when I um, realized I was a woman, as you do, I got a lot of transphobia from different people. Uh, I mainly got people not being transphobic. It was a minority of people who were being transphobic. It was a minority of people who were uh, attacking me for talking about feminism. But it did happen, and I did have to learn to ignore it uh, and kind of not care what they thought and focus on what I think matters, which is universal human emancipation. And that's what I'll, you know, dedicate my time towards trying to contribute to in whatever way I can. Um, and I've, you know, talked to people who are more kind of involved in like on the ground social movements than I am. I kind of read a lot and write and try to spread ideas, but I'm not like super involved in the struggle because I, I, I struggle with <laughs> in real life social situations. Um, but the people I've talked to who had had those experiences and you have lots of horror stories to tell me of sort of, people not listening to their concerns about, you know, identity politics and women's emancipation and just wanting to focus on class and this being kind of coupled with like sexism or racism. Um, and that's, you know, been really sad to hear. But this was also the case in the historic left. And if anything, it was worse than the historic left. Um, and we just have to do what previous people in the historic left did who were actual supporters of universal human emancipation which is keep going, keep trying to persuade people, keep trying to spread our ideas. And even if you're just changing one person's life or a few people's, that's still a huge amount of, of significance because think about how you would feel if you met someone who changed, say, how you thought about the sexism you'd internalized growing up and that then totally changed how you, you know, lived your life. Well, if you do that to a bunch of other people, that's a little bit of change, but it can add up. Uh, to, a, to a wider social change if lots of people are doing that. Um, so focus kind of on the little victories, even if you're having to deal with a lot of pushback, because there's no choice but to go forward and, and keep struggling if you, if you want to be free. Was this an observation you made right away, or is what you're telling me something that evolved over time where you were like, this is how I need to see things? So... When I was a teenager, I was like an actual anti-feminist. Like, I, I was like, I was definitely very sexist. I dismissed feminism. I, I'd had like a difficult childhood. And so I felt like when women were kind of complaining about things they had to deal with, it all seemed kind of nowhere near as bad as what I'd had to deal with. And so I thought it was kind of ridiculous that they were talking to me as if, you know, I hadn't suffered when I probably suffered more than they had in various ways. So then that kind of made me listen to like anti-feminists and, and go down a YouTube pipeline towards extreme sexism and, and so on. Uh, luckily, this was before YouTube fascism was a, was a big thing. So I, I didn't get down that pipeline, thankfully. Oh, that's good. <laughs> uh, but I, I definitely got into anti-feminism. And then I went to university and I met feminists and they were the nicest people I'd ever met um, who actually cared about the horrific things I'd experienced as a child. Um, and so when I started reading feminism and really focused on, on learning my sexism and learning how to you know, relate with people uh, as equals, and then the more I read, uh, the more important I thought it was. And I kind of started defending identity politics. 
and then I realized I was trans and that I hadn't been a man all along, <laughs> um, which wasn't something I kind of, uh, I, I often wonder what teenage me who was a, like an anti-feminist <laughs> would, would think if they, if they knew where, where I was going. Uh, which is that I wouldn't just become a feminist, but that I would realize I was a woman. Um, I think, <laughs> I think my brain would kind of explode. <laughs> um, so given like the place I was at, I, tr- I, you know, I, I have a lot of patience when talking to men who don't understand these things because I know what it's like to be sexist. I know what it's like to be an anti-feminist because I was one. And so I, I, I really do try to be patient with them and explain things to them, but I totally understand people who, you know, aren't willing to do that. But I, I kind of, uh, when I was a sexist, I didn't think I was a sexist. I actually thought I believed in, you know, women's like were gender equality, uh, and I would complain about sexism while being sexist. But I just didn't know what sexism was, so I wasn't even a, in a position to notice when I was being oppressive. I think this is the case of a lot of men. They don't understand that they're being oppressive because they think. If I am going to be oppressive, I have to be doing this consciously. I have to be thinking, I'm going to oppress women. They don't think I'm going to oppress women. Therefore, obviously, they're not oppressive. When the way oppression actually works is that you rarely actually think what you're doing is oppressive. You think what you're doing is justified and okay and acceptable because you don't know any better because how how you've been socialized, you know? And so the only way gender oppression will end is if men learn to not oppress women. And that means men are going to have to be persuaded to act differently and to so, and, and we're going to have to socialize children differently such that they don't, uh, reproduce the same oppressive structures we were socialized into. And that's, you know, a huge thing to try and achieve, but it has to be done if we want to achieve emancipation. This is a important reveal, I think, for a lot of people about what you used to be like, because it shows us, Hey, she didn't just come fully formed like this. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> so we too can change. We too can get better. We're still in the process of becoming and learning. We can always grow. We can always learn. Something I've been talking more and more about is decolonization. But to extrapolate on that more broadly about the internal work that should go along with radical politics, touching your points, but adding my own observations, if internal work is not part of radicalism, you'll still be the same traumatized person who just happens to be a leftist or now an abusive leftist, a sexist leftist, a racist leftist. The term leftist itself speaks to the lingering trauma of the Red Scare many Americans still have, which is why they prefer that term over socialist. So left politics is not a pill that cures all your baggage. That takes work beyond just reading old texts. Do you think then reconsidering identity politics is a way that might help us unpack our baggage? Yes, I do. Uh, so I think, as I've said you know, previously, if you read feminist theory or intersectional theory or think about your own identity and situation within structures of oppression, you can uh, use that to try and focus on, on learning how you can uh, socialized, um, and thereby become a better leftist than you were before. Um, so a quote I often think about when thinking about identity politics is by a Martinican poet called, uh, Aimé Césaire, which I hope I'm saying correctly. Uh, he resigns from the French Communist Party in 1956 and he writes this resignation letter 
you know, which he says the following, and I think it, it has a lot of wisdom in it. Um, he says, I am not burying myself in a narrow particularism, but neither do I want to lose myself in an emaciated universalism. There are two ways to lose oneself, walled segregation in the particular or dilution in the universal. My conception of the universal is that of a universal enriched by all that is particular, a universal enriched by every particular, the deepening and coexistence of all particulars. And I think that's what the left has to do. We have to have a leftism that is enriched by all our different perspectives and life experiences and the kind of oppression we've, we've, we've experienced in our lives and use that to develop a way of thinking about what kind of oppressive social structures exist, how they relate to one another to form this really massive system of terrible things we have to overthrow, and then think about how we can actually organize uh, to do that in a way that ensures that everyone in the social movement is able to be themselves, is able to develop themselves, and is able to uh, grow and flourish uh, within the organization uh, or, or social movement. Um, in a way that prefigures uh, the kind of society we want to achieve. And that, to go back to means and ends, you know, we want to achieve, say, a non-racist, non-sexist society. Well, that's got to start right now in our own lives and then the social movements that we participate in. And in order to do that, we're going to have to talk and listen to each other uh, and try and grow through those conversations. Um, and I think, you know, we all have things to learn. You know, I'm constantly learning. I still have huge areas where I could be enriched by more particulars. Like, you know, I've mainly been focusing my life on reading about anarchism. Uh, and I haven't, you know, been spending that time, say, reading a huge amount about, um, the black radical tradition. Um, and that's something, you know, which I want to change. Now I finished my PhD and have free time. I want to sit down and educate myself. And I think, I'm, you know, I'm no different from anyone else in this respect. We all have more things to learn to make sure we have a better understanding of different systems of oppression and how we can overcome them uh, and, and be good leftists. I was telling a mutual friend of ours how hearing about dates and times of what happened when and where, who said what, when and where isn't nearly as interesting to me as seeing left politics applied in new ways, which unfortunately tends to get the most pushback but speaking for myself and our listeners, we're definitely here for it. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with us, Zoe. Well, thanks for having me on. I uh, enjoyed myself and it was, uh, we covered a lot of stuff. <laughs> and I, I, yeah, I hope people enjoyed this. Where can people find you and do you have anything new in the works? Uh, so I have a Twitter and a YouTube uh, channel under uh, the name Zoe Baker. And my old name was uh, Anarchopack. Um, I'm currently working on several different response videos, uh, to other left-wing YouTubers, which are they're kind of like friendly response videos. But it's not me kind of attacking people and more me saying like, here's some things you might want to think about. Uh, and, and the hope is that we can kind of, it's a way of helping people learn about things they otherwise didn't know, but in a way that doesn't lead to conflict and drama and, uh, uh, the way YouTube usually operates. I'm trying to be like uh, the opposite <laughs> of how uh, a lot of YouTube actually operates. That's what I'm currently really working on. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, 
please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a 5-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hitting with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul.